Hello, everybody, and welcome. It is great to be with you today. As we get started, if you've got your Bible, turn it to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. That's where we're going to be camping out today. Uh, we are in the third week of our series where we're going through the book of Colossians verse by verse. And today we're going to take everything we've heard so far. If you missed the last couple weeks, go back and catch yourself up. We're going to consider all that stuff and bring it under an umbrella today. And it's the umbrella of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Our text here today is all about Jesus. It's who he is, what he does, what he's like. And just on a personal note, I'm going to sidebar here early. I love Jesus. I get fired up about Jesus. Jesus has changed my life. He has been faithful to me. He has shown up in my life time and time again. He has never let me down. I've let him down a lot of times, but not the other way around. Uh, he has saved my soul through his death on the cross, and he has secured my future through his resurrection from death. And so when I get the joy and the privilege and the opportunity to come into a text that's just like totally all about him, I get pretty jacked up because he's a big deal to me. And what you need to know is that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. Jesus reigns. Jesus died on a cross to pay for your sins. And in him there is forgiveness of sin, relationship with God, abundant life, eternal life. There is joy, peace, encouragement, purpose, freedom, even on the worst of days. In him all the promises of God find their fulfillment. So Jesus is Lord and that matters. In fact, that is what matters the most. So as we consider that, let's get into our text today. Like I said, it's Colossians 1, 15, and we'll read through verse 20. Here we go. It says that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I'm going to ask you something. When you think of the term game changer, what do you think of? I picture an event or a situation that took place that totally shook up the routine and changed how things are done. I, I think of companies like Amazon or Netflix or Uber, and when they came on the scene, uh, they literally blew up industries and put a whole bunch of people out of business. People were not ready for them. They changed the game. Some people probably don't appreciate them all that much. For some of you, the date September 9th, 1956, You'll know exactly what that is. It's the date, the first time that Elvis Presley appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show. And for a lot of people, a lot of like rock stars from the 70s or 60s, that changed the game for them. It was a huge moment. Um, I would classify some game changers in the bad category. Something like coronavirus is by and large in that category or something like 9-11, for example. Some game changers are good. For instance, in my life, when I discovered Krispy Kreme donuts, that was a game changer, and my life has never been the same since. Today, we are talking about eight game changers about Jesus. And listen, it's not because we have made some shocking new discovery about him, or we found some new resource, or we've some, found some hidden meaning in some obscure part of Scripture. No, these eight things have been here the whole time in plain sight, and they are game changers to the degree that we live in light of them. 
So if we hear these truths today about Jesus and shrug our shoulders and do nothing and just keep on going back to life as usual, they're not going to change much. But when we believe and accept them and step into them and start living in light of them, our whole lives start to change. It's pretty awesome. And so I'm praying for us as we go through this text. And I'm actually going to pray right now, Lord, that you would open our eyes, open our ears, open our minds, open our hearts today as we come into your word to study it. I'm praying, Holy Spirit, that you would give us revelation, deeper revelation, revelation on who Jesus is and why that's important. I'm praying that you would draw us into yourself today, Lord, and cause us to come to know you and worship you better through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So game changer number one about Jesus. Jesus is how we see and know God. It says in verse 15 of our text that he is the image of the invisible God. In verse 19, it says, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now, throughout history, there's been a lot of misconception about God, about who He is, about how we can approach Him and how we can relate to Him. And I want to just take a minute to set the record straight a little bit. Here's the thing about God. He is holy, and we are not. He is perfect, and we are not. He is sinless, and we are sinful. It's kind of like an oil and water situation. The two can't go together. And because of our sinful nature, because of the presence of sin in our lives and how it's affected us, we cannot see God. We can't just waltz into his presence and say, how you doing, and hang out with him. There are places in scripture that say, essentially, I'm paraphrasing largely, that if we were to all of a sudden come face to face with God's glory and presence, we would spontaneously explode. We couldn't handle it. The eye of sinful man cannot bear to look upon God. He is a consuming fire. He is too glorious for us. We would be consumed and burned up. So in this sense, he is invisible. We cannot approach him or know him on our own, in our own stock, strength, and merit. Hebrews 12, 14 says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And none of us in and of ourselves possess that holiness that's required. However, Jesus Christ, it says here, is the image of the invisible God. So though we are sinful and though we don't measure up enough to, quote, get to where God is or ascend to that level, God comes to us in the form of Jesus Christ. And I got to tell you, this is different than pretty much all major world religions. They teach that if we try hard enough or do enough good or pay off enough debt or become enlightened enough, we can either ascend to where God is or we can become like gods ourselves. We as believers in Jesus reject that stance. In fact, we believe pretty much the opposite. We cannot do enough. We cannot earn our way. We cannot ascend to the presence of God somehow. Our sin, it's like a brick wall we run into. It prevents us from getting there. But God loves us so much that rather than him expecting us to get to where he is in vain, knowing we can't do it, he comes to us in the form of Jesus Christ, his son. And that's awesome. And while we obviously are not among the people who are walking around on the earth with Jesus in the flesh, we still have seen him and we still do know him. Now we don't see him with our eyes. Like I say, you're not walking around in front of us, but it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, that we are to live by faith, not by sight. And the fact that Jesus is not physically in front of us in a body of flesh actually does nothing to diminish our experience and reality of him in any way. It says in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 8, Though you have not seen him with your eyes, you love him. 
Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. What that tells me is that we truly can actually, honestly know and love Jesus. It's not some imaginary thing. It is real. And the key ingredient in there is faith. When we put our faith and trust in Jesus, our sins are forgiven, we come into relationship with Him, and it's an actual, literal, life-giving, life-changing relationship. It's not just some illusion or some metaphor or some pretend thing. It's very real. And it's only possible because of and through Jesus. Now let's take this even a step further. In seeing and knowing Jesus, we haven't just seen a representation of God or a shadow of God. We have seen God Himself. It says in Hebrews 1.3 that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And verse 19 in our text that we read says, In Him all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. In Jesus we have seen and known God Himself. This is massive. This is astronomical. We actually can know through Jesus, we actually know the creator and the sustainer and the provider for all of life. And so when you think about or read about God's might and strength, that's talking about Jesus. When you think about God's love and mercy and grace, that's talking about Jesus. That's found in Him. When you bask in the glory and the presence of God, you're basking in the glory and presence of Jesus in all its fullness. That's what this text tells us. So Jesus is not some lesser copy of God or some knockoff brand. He is 100% totally, fully God Himself. He is how we see, know, and relate to God and how amazing it is to know Him. Somebody help me today. Number two, Jesus is the first. Somebody says, why didn't you make that point number one then? Because I didn't want to. Anyway, it says in verse 15 that he is the firstborn of all creation. In verse 17, he is before all things. Verse 18, he is the beginning that in everything he might be preeminent. So if we're going to understand this, we need to understand the concept in Scripture about the first. The first comes up a lot in the Bible. For instance, especially in the Old Testament, the concept of the firstborn comes up a lot. The idea is that the firstborn child, usually the son, would receive a double inheritance. Sidebar, as the secondborn son in my family, I resent that a little bit, but that is my problem and not yours. Um, for rulers, the firstborn son would be the one to ascend to the throne after the current ruler was done. In Exodus 13, 2, God says, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and beast, is mine. The Bible also talks a lot about the concept of the first fruits. The concept of first fruits is that the very first portion, the best portion, the choice portion of, say, harvest or livestock belongs to the Lord. This is where concepts like tithing come from, where we bring God our first and best. We bring the first portion, the best cut of meat, the very best part. There's also a place, I threw this one in just for fun, in John chapter 2, Jesus turns water into wine, and it's really good wine apparently, and someone from the wedding comes out and says, hey, normally you bring out the best wine first. And my point in saying all of this is that the first has special distinction and special honor. That's the scriptural concept there. So when you talk about the first, you're talking about the best part that commands attention and respect. It's the head, it's the choice portion, and so on. So if we consider Jesus, like it says in our text, who's the firstborn of all creation, 
This doesn't mean he was a created being. We've talked about this before. Some people have wrongly believed, oh, that means Jesus was the first thing God created. No, that's not what it means at all. Jesus has always existed as an equal and full part of the Godhead, the Trinity, the three persons of God. What this means, rather, is that Jesus has special distinction and honor over all things, over everything that's been made. This means that Jesus comes first, before anyone or anything else. This means that Jesus is to be revered and paid attention to and respected and worshipped. This means that we are to take a big view of Jesus, not a small one. To take a small view of Jesus means that we look at him kind of like he's our genie in the bottle, or he's our therapist, or he's our assistant, or he's just there to make our lives easier and better and more convenient. Jesus is not someone to be trifled with or manipulated or controlled. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the Creator God. He is the everlasting God, the ruler of the ends of the earth. And like it says, as the firstborn, as verse 17, the one who goes before, verse 18, the one who is preeminent. Preeminent just means surpassing all others. It means very distinguished in some way. As all of that stuff, he commands our attention and respect. It means when he talks, we ought to be listening. It means what he thinks we ought to regard. That means what he says we ought to obey. That means what he values we ought to value. As the first, Jesus ought to have number one position in our lives. That should be our heart that all we are, all that we have, all that we do should revolve around him. And that's a huge concept that's going to take a lifetime to grow into and experience the fullness of that. But it's totally worth beginning that today. It's totally worth living that kind of life because that is the life we were created to live, to be seeing Jesus as the first. So do you put him first today? Where's Jesus in your life today? Do you regard him at all? Is he somewhere in the middle of the pack? Jesus is first. Number three, all things were created by him. It says in verse 16 of Colossians 1 that for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created by Jesus Christ. And you say, well, I don't know if I've read that before. I thought God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, what exactly did Jesus do? Where does it say anything about that? And, you know, we can kind of get into frankly, unnecessary banter about this one. You might say, well, I've read Genesis 1-1 and I've read that it says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and then it says the Spirit was hovering over the waters. So tell me and show me what exactly did Jesus do? There's kind of an element, honestly, of who cares? Who cares? It would be kind of like, this is the image that came to my mind and this is whatever, so I apologize. This would be like, looking at somebody like Kevin Weir, where we just finish a, like a time of worship and Kevin's up there not getting a, a guitar lesson, but he's teaching the guitar lesson. There's smoke coming off the thing. And it'd be like him coming down off of there and you saying, wow, Kevin, that was awesome, man. That was just great. Your hands were really moving. You really lit it up there. And he'd say, well, actually, I was only using my index finger and my ring finger. It wasn't my whole hand doing anything. It was this mode or this chord or this technique. Who cares? You know what I mean? It was his hands. 
his hands were moving and going, and all we need to know is that that's what was going on, and it sounded awesome. So we've gone on about how Jesus is fully and totally and equally God. And yes, by all means, there are some times we should distinguish between different parts of the Trinity and what they do. This probably doesn't need to be one of them. Because when it says in Genesis 1-1 that God created the heavens and the earth, we can logically and rationally and reasonably assume that Jesus is fully involved in that. It doesn't say only God the Father did this. It says God created them. And scripture is actually very clear that not only was Jesus there in the beginning, he actually was involved in doing stuff. In John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So what I'm trying to tell you is that the same Jesus who died on the cross to pay for your sins is the very same God who created the heavens and the earth. He's the very same. Now, if we come back to our Colossians verse, it says that even the thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities were created by him. And you might read that like it's saying, oh, that's like human government or human institutions. And there may be some merit in there for sure, like Jesus is over all that stuff. But I did some digging and what it seems like this verse is saying, it's actually a reference to spiritual forces, spiritual uh, principalities and authorities, angelic beings, because there's, a, there's a, a line in there that says he's over all that is visible and invisible. And it's likely leading to when it says about the thrones and dominions. So one of the things we can't see very quickly, uh, there, there are some things in life that are visible and some things that we can't see. One of the things we can't see is the spirit realm. And this is where, among other things, there are angels, thousands and millions of angels, and they're in God's presence, singing his praises continually, and they work sort of as ministers and messengers of his. And it's not as though angels appear to people every single day, but if you look at scripture, it does say that angels have appeared to people, but it's more of an irregularity than a regularity. Now, one of the things, and we're going to see this more in the coming weeks, one of the things that the Colossian church was dealing with was false teaching. And like we're going to see, one of the elements of this false teaching is that they were getting involved in the worship of angels. So here, Paul directly confronts that by saying, hey, these angels, these thrones, these principalities, these dominions, they are inferior to Jesus. In fact, he created them. He's above them. All in all, Jesus is above all of what is unseen and what is seen. He is in authority over it all because he created it all. There is no power greater than him. He is the creator of all things and is sovereign over all of it. Number four, all things were not only created by him, all things were created for him. It's helpful to know the purpose of something, right? I, for one, have always hated it, and some might think this is a millennial thing, I don't know. I have always hated it when I'm in a situation where I'm asked to do something, and as I'm doing it, I cannot figure out what the purpose is. There seems to be no discernible reason for which this activity is happening. And the thought that came into my mind this week was, when I was in grade 11 English, we studied Macbeth, Shakespeare's Macbeth, for six months. And there's nothing wrong with Macbeth, but for six months, and I remember sitting there thinking, why are we doing this? Half the class can't spell and has terrible grammar. We probably don't need to be reading Macbeth for six months. When we know the purpose for something, what something is for, when we understand the why of something, 
it really helps put things into perspective and it helps inform the rest of our activity. So for instance, do I love doing the dishes? Not really, but I understand how they fit into the grand scheme of things and why it's important. I understand that if I don't do the dishes, my dishes won't be clean when I want to eat next time. And I really like to eat, therefore the dishes are important. So I do them happily, willingly, no problem at all because I understand why it's important. Our life has a purpose. And people have mused and philosophized over that for thousands of years and struggled to find the answer. But it is crystal clear. Our purpose, our why, the reason for our existence is right in Scripture. And it's right in this text. It's super clear. Verse 16, it says, All things were created through Him, Jesus, and for Him. I have a study Bible that says it this way. Jesus is not only the agent of creation, but the goal of creation. And we talked about this a little while back in our gospel series. All of creation exists to praise and glorify God through all of the various aspects of life and activities of life. And we as humans have a special place in that because we are exclusively the bearers of God's image. So it says in Genesis 1.27. So the idea is in everything that we do, everything that we think, everything that we say, everything that we put our hands to, everything that we strive to and dream for, all of it should be done for the glory of God. And some might hear that and think, well, that sounds repressive. That sounds kind of Stone Age. I'm not second to or under anybody. The purpose of my life is to make me happy. The purpose of my life is to get and do what I want. Why would anyone want to live a life where they're not the point of it, where they're not the center of it? And I would just say, because us not being at the center is the entire point. Life is not about you. Life is about something, someone greater than you and his name is Jesus. It says all things were made for him. That means exactly what it looks like it means. That means the purpose of every single thing that exists, including you and me, is to lift Jesus high. It's to proclaim Jesus' glory, sing Jesus' praise, to shout forth his exaltation. And guess what? When we start to take the focus off of ourselves and put it on Jesus, that's when we actually find that we start living truly living, when we stop trying to be the center and allow Him to be, when we desire His will above our own will, when we live to please Him before ourselves, when we worship Him instead of ourselves or other things, lesser things, that is when we start to experience true joy and lasting peace and deep fulfillment. If you want to know the secret to life, you tap into the very reason for existence. It's for Jesus' glory. It's not for your own happiness or your own fulfillment. Jesus is the whole purpose of it all. So what can you do by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit to walk away from a self-centered life and step into a Christ-centered life? Jesus, your life is about Him, whether you acknowledge it or not. And it's time for, honestly, for some of us to start living the life we have been called to live. Number five, Jesus holds all things together. If you want to know where I came up with that particular heading, it's from verse 17 in Colossians 1 that says, And in him all things hold together. Jesus Christ is the author and the sustainer and the provider for all of life. And if you hear that and say, isn't that God's job? Bravo, you're beginning to catch on. The reality is this world, this life is pretty crazy. 
Does that begin to describe it for you? It's crazy. The pace of life, even during the coronavirus, I don't know about you, like I'm no less busy than I was. The pace of life is wild. So much going on. It seems like everybody is stressed out and struggling and anxious. And on top of that, there's volatility in the world and there's chaos and unrest and uncertainty. Lots of crazy stuff going on. And when we consider all of that and live through all that, we can start to worry and get anxious about it. Why? Because we realize we're not in control. And we would love to think we're in control and we play little games and tricks on ourselves to convince ourselves that we are, but we're just not. We're not in control. And if you haven't figured that out already, you will. And when we reach that conclusion that we're not in control, we have two choices. Number one, we can either sink into despair and hopelessness because we're not able to control what goes on around us or even in us. Or number two, we can choose to trust the one who is in control. We read the first part of Hebrews 1.3 earlier. That was, he's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Listen to the continuation of this verse. It says that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. That blows my mind. Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Job 12.10 says, In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. And it goes on and on and on. What about something like Ephesians 6.10? That's where we're told to be strong in our own strength. No, just kidding, making sure you were listening. That tells us to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Friends, there is not one single thing that happens in this world that does not either come from the hand of God or passes through his hand. Nothing happens that surprises him. Every little seemingly random thing happens on his watch. And now, understand, God doesn't cause everything. He's not the origin of everything. There is wickedness and evil, and a lot of that stuff doesn't come from God. Uh, there's spiritual forces and demonic activity and satanic stuff going on. Um, but what I want you to understand is that God isn't caught off guard or by surprise by that. God ordains it and he knows about it. And he promises, you know exactly where I'm going, he promises that for the believer he will take everything that happens, even the very worst of things, and he will cause that to work for the good of those who love him. You know what that tells me? That tells me that God is sovereign over it, that God is in control of all things. Jesus, my friends, is Lord of his creation. Even after all the crazy things that have happened in history, even after all the unpredictability of life today, the world is still firmly fixed in its place. Even in spite of all of the evil, all of the chaos, all of the confusion in the world right now, it's Jesus who is holding it all together. He is still on his throne. He is still in control. And we don't have to live in fear or worry about what's going to happen because Jesus is greater. Jesus is stronger. Jesus is over all of this stuff. As the hymn goes, I know who holds the future. As believers, we are safe and secure in his hand no matter what. No matter how crazy life gets, Jesus is holding it all together. Like I think that's a game changer for some of you. Some of you who are living in fear and anxiety and just so worried about everything. Jesus is holding it all together. Trust in him today. Number six. Jesus is the head of the church. I am your pastor. It's an honor. I love you guys. I love my job. But I am not the head of the church. I work with and under a group of elders. They also love you very much and they want what's best for you. But they're not the head of the church either. 
We have a board of directors. They're not the head of the church. It says in verse 118, chapter 1, verse 18 of Colossians, He, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. You know what that means? That means that it is not what I say that is the final authority. It's not what the elders say that carries the most weight. It's not the board of directors. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. What does He want? What does He say? And now I want to just reassure you, it's our mandate and our calling as leaders and elders, pastors, whatever, to make sure that the decisions we make are in line with the heart and the will and the character of the Lord. Um, And that's what we strive to do. But that said, I would love it if you would pray for us. Pray for the elders. Pray for your leaders. We would love that. Thank you in advance. So let me just say this to church leaders first. If you are watching this or listening to this and you're in leadership of some capacity in your church, This particular one is a game changer because oftentimes, even though we know what the Bible says and we know what our hearts should be, we still functionally act as though we're the head of the church. We think that we make the decisions and we call the shots and we describe or or get to define rather what is right and what is wrong. I'm saying how our churches would be different if we gave that up and instead of putting all kinds of energy and effort and time into upholding what we think, what if we put the same amount of effort and gusto into upholding what Jesus thinks? Our churches would probably not look the same. Now, for the rest of us church folk, your participation in and understanding of the church should be very Christ-centric. It says in Ephesians 4.15 that we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, that's the church, joined and held together with every joint from which, with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Take notice in there that it says the goal is to grow up into the head, into Jesus. He is the target. He is what we're taking aim at. So if you want to understand anything about the church, you need to start with Jesus. The church is a group of people who believe in and belong to Jesus. The church is to grow up into every way into Jesus. The mission of the church is to make Jesus known and central in the world by spreading the gospel and teaching people about him and baptizing them and making disciples. The purpose of the church as a whole is to bring honor and glory to Jesus. And if your involvement of or understanding of the church has nothing to do with Jesus whatsoever, I'm telling you, you're missing the point. If your connection to the church is primarily that it makes you feel good, you're missing it. If your connection to the church is primarily that you like the social aspect and hanging out with people, you're missing it. If your connection to the church is that you like coming and enjoying the coffee and muffins when we used to meet together, as good as those are, you're missing it. If, you, if your connection to the church is that you like the worship team when they play on Sunday and the wild keyboard antics of Richard Jones, as fun as that is to watch, you're missing the point. It's all about Jesus. He is the head. He is the boss. He, what he says is most important. He is the goal. The work that we are to do as a church is for the purpose of lifting him high and growing in his likeness and pointing other people to him. He is the prize. Man, there's nothing better than 
enjoying the presence of Jesus. I think even especially like when we meet together and he meets with us, it's amazing. He is the mission. Man, listen, the mission of the church is not let's get more people to come on Sunday. That is so short-sighted. The mission is to get people to come to and grow in Christ and for us to grow in Christ ourselves. Ultimately, Jesus is the entire point and purpose. And if he is not, not only part of the formula, but the whole equation, we are wasting our time. And I just want to point out as well, when we think about Jesus as the head of the church, the the Jesus who is the head of the church is not just the Jesus who died. What I mean by that is that our leader, the one we look to, is not some guy who lived a long time ago and said and did some cool things and then he died and that was it and we enshrined him and now we just look into the past for inspiration or to see his example and that's it. That's all well and good, but I'm saying the head of our church is the Jesus who died and rose. Our leader is not someone who lived a long time ago and died uh, and, and, and was immortalized. And, but we, we look to not only his earthly life for inspiration and example, but we look to his current status. We look to his current heavenly reign for guidance and instruction and leadership and nurturing and nourishing and sustaining and growth. He leads the church right now in real time, not just as some figure from the past. We acknowledge that today. And it doesn't matter if the culture changes or the politics change or political correctness changes. Jesus is the risen, ruling, and reigning head of his church right now. That's what's going on. He's the head of his church. Number seven, Jesus is alive. It's like more than just a little small one, right? Verse 18 of Colossians 1 says, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He is alive. Like I just said, we don't worship someone who lived and died a long time ago. We worship the living, risen Lord, the one who conquered the grave. Jesus not only died on the cross, but he busted up out of that grave. We get pretty excited about that. He proved that he is greater. He is stronger. He has defeated death. Nobody before Jesus ever died and then came back to life never to die again. That's what it means by he's the firstborn of the dead. And remember, the first, the first has special honor and distinction. And you know what else it means in this context? When it says he's the firstborn of the dead, it means he's the first of many. It means that those of us who believe in him and belong to him will also get to follow in his pattern and his precedent. So just as Jesus rose from the grave in a resurrected, glorified body, so too will we as believers in Jesus rise in a resurrected, glorified body. When Jesus comes back, those of us who belong to him will rise to meet with him and we will follow him and go to be with him forever. And this means that just as death was not the end for Jesus, death is also not the end for the believer. It's just the beginning. It's a passing through. And like we talked about back at Easter time, we were talking about this. This gives us hope and confidence because if you belong to Jesus, you don't have to worry about what's on the other side. You don't have to worry about the experience. You don't have to fear death and dying. That is staggering. That is huge. People live in crippling fear of that every day. And we don't have to as believers. In all of this, we marvel at our great King Jesus who victoriously defeated the grave. We let that fuel our worship of him. We like talking about that and singing about it and making a big deal about it. Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. Jesus is alive. And that changes everything. Finally, number eight, Jesus is our reconciler. Verse 20 of our text says, Through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. 
So we've identified this already in our series. We've kind of danced around it today. But here it comes again. We have separated ourselves from God by our sin. It's not a case of, excuse me, oh, I'm just on the other side of this open door right here and I'm doing fine and anytime I want, I can just step through that and God and I are good. That's not what's going on. It's, uh, we are totally separated and severed. We are cut off from the love and the grace and the presence of God. We are dead and we are done. There, we have no way or no hope of bringing ourselves back from that situation or fixing our problem. But Jesus, as our reconciler, he comes and he fixes that problem for us. He reconciles us to himself through his sacrificial death on the cross. And to reconcile means to bring back, to restore, redeem, re, uh, restore friendly relations between, to make things right. And I'm going to talk about our reconciliation next week, so I'm going to go short here. But what you need to know is that one of the main activities of God in the world is reconciliation. We you understand he created everything to be a certain way. And we came along and we messed that up and ruined it. But now God is reconciling things. He's fixing things for his glory. So if you think back to when you got saved, that was a, that was a bigger experience than just you yourself getting saved. That's a part of the big grand scheme of things, of God reconciling things and people to himself. He restored you to right standing with him. And every life that we see that gets affected by the gospel, that's God reconciling. And the Bible says that when the present earth and the present heavens pass away, it will be replaced by a new heaven and a new earth. That's God reconciling, fixing, making things right, restoring. Jesus has made this reconciliation possible by the cross. Because you understand, we were hostile against God. We were not just neutral on neutral terms with him. We were enemies of his. We were at war with God. But by the giving of his body and the shedding of his blood, peace has been restored. You need to understand something. Like sometimes we think of Jesus as this peaceful, just came to show peace and love to everybody and whatever. Jesus did not come as a peacekeeper. He came as a peacemaker. There was no peace to keep. Because sacrifice is required for sin. Payment has to be made. God doesn't just shrug his shoulders or turn a blind eye or overlook our sin. It has to be dealt with. It has to be paid for. God will pour out his wrath and his fury for sin. But instead of it being poured out on us, he poured it out on Jesus. Instead of us having to sacrifice our own lives, Jesus sacrificed his. Instead of us having to die for sin, Jesus died for us. Instead of us making full and total payment for sin, Jesus paid all of it. It is only through the cross of Jesus Christ that we are made right and reconciled with God. If we accept it, if we believe it, if we step into that place, we are reconciled. And since Jesus is the one who reconciled us, the one who has brought us back, who has carried us over that divide, we love him. We respect him. We praise him. We live a life that is thankful to him. We stick close to him. We worship him. He is our reconciler. Time to start wrapping this up. This whole thing today, everything we've talked about, has been all about Jesus. This is who he is this is what he has done. This is what he is like. This is where he stands and what he demands. And I'm telling you that Jesus is a game changer. And when we actually step in and live in light of who he is in relationship with him, everything is totally different. And I'm just saying, this might upset somebody, but if you claim Jesus as your Lord, but your life is totally, continually, utterly unaffected, then that would lead me to believe you're not really following him. 
Because when you follow him, everything changes. When you stay close to him, everything changes. And so there are two questions that come out of this today. And we're all going to answer these. Every single one of us needs to answer these. Number one, who do you say Jesus is? Who do I say Jesus is? You can't just shrug that off. We've got to answer it. And you probably heard this one before, but I really like the three options that C.S. Lewis gives us. He says you can either say that Jesus was a liar. He wasn't who he said he was. You can say he was a lunatic. He was off his rocker. Or you can say and come to grips with the fact that he is the Lord. Who do you say Jesus is? And the second question flows out of that. What are you going to do about it? When you consider Jesus, you have to respond. You must. That's not me telling you how to feel. That's just like how it works. That's the mechanics of it. There's no such thing as not responding when you're confronted with or considering Jesus. Even if you just consider him and then shrug your shoulders and walk away, you've still responded. You have responded by choosing not to say yes, which honestly is the same thing as saying no. And listen, I'm not just talking about unbelievers either, okay? I'm not just talking about the initial experience of choosing Jesus. I'm talking about all of us, Christians or not. I don't know what the Lord might be asking you to do in response today. I don't know exactly what he might be confronting you with or nudging you toward. So I can't tell you, each and every one of you, exactly how you should respond. But here's what I can say. If you're not a Christian, the best response you can make is to say yes to Jesus. It's to accept the free gift of grace that he offers you, that he paid for on the cross. It's to have your sins forgiven in him. It's to come into relationship with him and live the life that you were created and designed to live. And you will be totally changed. And I want to just tell you, if you have questions about that or want to say yes to Jesus today or you want to know more, we'll have contact info for the church just in a minute here at the end of this video. And I would love it if you would reach out or talk to another Christian that you know. That would be your best response that you can make. Now, if you are a Christian, again, we still respond. Every time we are confronted with Jesus, we've got to respond. So what is he asking you to do today? What response is he wanting you to make? I would encourage you, say yes to him. Say yes to him. Step in closer to him and allow him to lead and guide you and love you and shape you in this next season of your life. Guys, Jesus is a game changer. So don't go on living like he is not. Choose to seek him today. Choose to walk with him today. And as you do, as you seek him and walk with him, your life will change. You will grow to love and desire him more. You will grow in your faith. You will grow in your confidence in him. Your heart will start to change. Your desires will start to change. Everything is different when we tap into who Jesus is. And it will change for his glory and for your good. So we're going to pray now as we close up. I would invite you wherever you're at to join me and agree with me in prayer. So let's go to the Lord as we finish up here today. Lord Jesus, first of all, we want to acknowledge who you are. You are God. You are Lord. You are the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the God above all gods. You are the creator, the sustainer, the provider for all of life. We acknowledge your place and position today, Lord. We acknowledge that you are the one in authority. We acknowledge that you are the one who calls us to align ourselves to you, to make our lives be central upon you. So Lord, I'm praying today that we would not only walk away from this with a better understanding in our minds about who you are, and that we wouldn't just be encouraged today, but that you would penetrate our hearts, and God, you would cause us 
to be drawn into you, drawn into knowing you better, drawn into living for you better, drawn into worshiping you better. Lord Jesus, again, we give you thanks today. I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray that you would again cause this to sink deep within us and allow us to walk in light of who you are. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So thanks for being with us. Again, if you've got questions or we'd love for you to reach out, see the contact info here in a second. Thanks for being with us, and we'll see you next time.